0: Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 101, Edward II and the Jew of Malta, the rest of Marlowe Last time, Dr Faustus met his inevitable end amidst stage effects and costumed devils. His demise was very much a justification of a Christian who thought that he could get the better of God through magic and therefore confirmed the Christian message. Prior to this, the mighty Tamburlaine had expressed a rather more subtly anti-Christian message, but both plays depended on the central character that dominates the play. Both Faustus and Tamburlaine are in just about every sense larger than life. Both plays are also, at their heart, religious and philosophical questioning the place of man in relation to his creator and his role in God's creation. The language given to these two men to speak is grand and looks out at the world on a large scale. Marlowe's other three plays are quite different in those respects, but no lesser in ambition. The world that provides the setting for Edward II and the Jew of Malta is one centred on the events and the characters portrayed, with little sense of any implications for a wider world. Despite one of them being a king, the leading characters are not great men of history or legend and don't hold a scale of desire that we have seen before. The world portrayed in these plays is one full of petty villainy, weak men and hypocrisy and that doesn't necessarily make them depressing plays and I would guess that produced well they're not boring to watch. However, they don't have the more or less universal appreciation that is given to Dr. Faustus and Tamburlaine. Where some will praise the fast pace of Edward II, others call it scrappy and rushed. Where some bemoan the lack of strong charismatic central characters, others find much improved characterization in more realistic protagonists. But to appreciate that, one does have to get through some characters that are very wicked and rather dour and blank verse that is not as good as that which Marlowe crafted for his larger-than-life heroes. Rather Thin is the verdict that I've seen more than once in my reading. However, one thing that everyone seems to agree on is that, whether you like these plays or not, Marlowe is always thought-provoking and worth the effort of digging into. So, let's start with The Famous Tragedy of the Rich Jew of Malta, to give it its full title. The best guess is that the play was written in 1589 or 1590. The chorus who opens the play is the ghost Machiavelli, clearly based on the character of Niccolo Machiavelli, who I covered in the early episodes of season four of the podcast all about the early Italian Renaissance. In this play, he positions the story as a tragedy and suggests that power is a moral. Barabbas, a Jewish merchant living in Malta, is waiting for his ships to return. He's told that they have safely landed but that all the Jews have been called to see the governor for The governor tells them that it is decreed that all Jews must pay half their wealth to the government to enable the island to pay off the tribute required by the Turks which has become a very large sum and overdue thanks to a decade of non-payment. When Barabbas refuses the governor punishes him by seizing all of his estates and declaring that his home will be converted into a convent. While swearing revenge, he tries to recover some of the portable wealth from his house with the help of his daughter Abigail, who pretends to convert to Christianity so that she can get into the convent and recover the gold that her father had hidden there. The governor meets with the Spanish vice-admiral, who is looking to sell slaves in Malta and suggests that the Maltese should break their alliance with the Turks and accept Spanish protection. While viewing the slaves in the market, Barabbas meets the governor's son Ludwig who has come to seek out the Jew's daughter, who he has heard is a great beauty. This knowledge prompts Barabbas to plan revenge on Phanese, and he promises Abigail to Ludovic. He buys a Christian-hating slave, Ithamor. Barabbas meets Ludovic's friend Matthias, who is also after Abigail's affections. Barabbas promises her to him too, thereby setting friend against friend. The announcement of Ludwig's engagement to Abigail sets things in motion and Ithamore adds to the flames of jealousy by passing a forged letter to Matthias that allegedly is from Ludwig, challenging him to a duel. The opening of Act Three introduces the prostitute Bellamyra and her pimp. They decide to steal some of Barabbas's gold since business has been slow lately. Ithamore meets Bellamyra and falls in love with her. Ludovic and Matthias duel and kill each other. Firenze and Matthias' mother find them and vow revenge on the killer. Abigail learns from Ithamore that Barabbas, through his deceptions, is responsible for their deaths. She is heartbroken and appeals to Friar Giacomo to be allowed back into the convent which she had illicitly visited before. When Barabbas discovers what she has done, he is furious and vows to poison all of the nuns in the convent. To this end, he instructs Ithamore to deliver poisoned rice to the sisters. Farnese informs the Turkish emissary that Malta will not pay the tribute owed, and he leaves, warning Farnese that he will soon see Turkish ships on the horizon, fully equipped and manned to take the island. Back at the convent, all the nuns are dead by poison. Abigail is horrified and confesses to Giacomo about her father's involvement with Ludovic and Matthias' death but Giacomo cannot share the information as it was discovered during the sacrament of confession. As Barabbas and Ithamore celebrate their success, Giacomo and a fellow friar arrive to confront them. Barabbas realises that Giacomo knows what he has done and distracts him by pretending to want to convert to Christianity and donate his wealth to whatever monastery he joins. The two friars argue over which monastery Barabbas should join and, taking advantage of their distraction, Ithamore strangles Giacomo's companion and they frame Giacomo for the murder. Ithamore then drunkenly tells Bellamyra everything his master has done and she decides to blackmail Barabbas and then tell the governor afterwards. But again, Barabbas realises what is afoot and poisons Bellamyra, her pimp and Ithamore, cursing their treachery. But Bellamyra has already told Phnese about Barabbas' activities, and he sends soldiers to arrest him to avoid arrest. Barabbas fakes his own death and tells the Turkish general how to best attack the city following a successful storming of the city. The Turks make Barabbas governor, although he realizes his position is far from secure. He sends for Phnese and tries to make a deal with him, saying that he will expel the Turks for a generous payment in return. Farnese agrees and Barabbas invites the Turkish general to his home for a meal. The plan was for Farnese to grab the Turk and throw him into a boiling cauldron, but at the last moment he grabs Barabbas and throws him into the boiling liquid instead. The play ends as Farnese throws himself at the mercy of the Turk, the only person who can grant Farnese and Malta freedom. This play's standout motif is the unsavoury depiction of a Jew to an Elizabethan audience. The degree to which they'd been exposed to Jews and a Jewish society in everyday life is debatable, but certainly there would be at least some latent anti-Semitism in society thanks to the role of the Jews in the death of Christ as often repeated in the church. This play did nothing to allay any of that. Indeed, it's likely that Marlowe was knowingly tapping into existing prejudices. Scholars also suggest that Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice was highly influenced by The Jew of Malta. Edward II is a very different play in style and theme, but certainly by Marlowe. A now extremely rare first edition was published in 1594, Having been registered with the Stationer's Office in July fifteen ninety three, just six months after Marlowe's death. The full title is "The Troublesome Reign and Lamentable Death of Edward the Second, King of England, and the Tragical Fall of the Proud Mortimer." But rather than being a tragedy, it seems clear that Marlowe's intention was for this to be more or less a straight telling of historical events, so a chronicle or history play, and as such it is one of the earliest examples of a genre that would become so very popular over the subsequent decades, once playwrights realised what a useful and entertaining tool the retelling of history could be. However, the play focuses very much on the king's relationship with the nobleman Piers Gaveston and Roger Mortimer, and the impact that they have on his ability to govern well. As Gaveston was widely assumed to have been the king's lover, It is perhaps inevitable that many have suggested that this aspect of the play was also of particular interest to Marlowe. It's also suggested that this particular king's reign would not be the first to be selected for theatrical retelling, as it hardly shows England at her best. The historical detail comes from Hollingshed's Chronicles published in 1587, with some embellishments of the main characters being Marlowe's creations. But to address that question of the homosexual thread in Marlowe, well, one can clearly be picked out, not only in the plays but in the poetry too. The case for Edward II's sexual preferences was a well-known story even then, but there is also a suggestion of some same-sex interest in the function of the court minions in Henry III in The Massacre at Paris, between Jove and Ganymede in Dido, Queen of Carthage and between Neptune and Leander in the poem Hero and Leander. Then, of course, there is the latent admiration of Tamburlaine in all his grandiose masculinity. However, in each case it's certainly possible to argue that the homosexual was not the driving interest and references are, on the whole, either very oblique or repeating themes and situations from Greek and Roman originals. Having said that, it is in Edward II that there are most references to homosexuality as Marlowe explored the relationship between the king and Gaveston, which, of course, is never overtly mentioned, but subtly referred to. The irony is that the lords who oppose Edward and Gaveston's relationship so strongly are not doing so explicitly because they are lovers – but because the relationship is socially inappropriate and flouted before them with the gifts and honours that Edward showers Gaveston with. How far Marlowe's true voice and thoughts can be heard in the plays and the poems will, no doubt, be continued to be debated and I'm not going to come down one way or the other here because I'm not sure that it really matters. Marlowe was an artist who found varied means of expression and, I think, was far more interested in a general exploration of human nature and spirituality than the peccadilloes of any one individual. And so to Edward II, and just a warning that towards the end of this synopsis there's a bit of detail about the portrayal of the death of Edward that some of you might want to skip. Just jump about 15 seconds when you hear me say, then comes the gruesome death of King Edward. The play opens with the news of the death of Edward I, and the first move of the new king, his son, to revoke the exile of his friend Gaveston, so that he can return to England. The courtly lords, including the powerful Mortimer and his son, murmur dissatisfaction with this and immediately begin to plot against Gaveston. They worry what effect his presence will have on the king, and therefore on the country. The king, however, is resolute, and out of his presence the lords threaten rebellion. Gaveston arrives and the king showers him with extravagant gifts and titles while promising to protect him from all his enemies. The bishop of Coventry who passed the original sentence on Gaveston is shocked to see him back at court. He calls Gaveston out as a lawbreaker and Edward retaliates by seizing the bishop's property and gifting it to Gaveston. The lords continue to plot emboldened by Edward's recent actions. The Archbishop of Canterbury joins them, but makes it clear that he is only against Gaveston and not the King. Queen Isabella enters, and although displeased with the King, pleads for diplomacy rather than war, and the Lords agree. The Lords have prepared a decree to banish Gaveston again, which just requires the King's signature. Before the King, they present their evidence and demand renewed exile for Gaveston. Edward tries to persuade them to relent by offering each of them offices of state and other benefits but the lords are resolute and eventually the king has to agree to sign. Gaveston and Edward share a quiet moment on stage before Isabella enters. They argue over Edward and Gaveston's relationship and her alleged impropriety with Mortimer. Alone Isabella regrets her position but concludes that she must win Edward's love and that this is best done through supporting Gaveston. At first the Lords are shocked at Isabella's change of heart but she explains her strategy and that she would support the killing of Gaveston. The Lords agree the plan and when Edward returns he is pleased with the apparent about turn in court. He announces tournaments in celebration and proposes marriage between Gaveston and his cousin. The court exits, but Mortimer, both father and son, remain and consider why such a low character can influence the king so strongly. Mortimer Senior departs for Scotland to seek assistance. To the annoyance of the lords, Edward is preoccupied with Gaveston, ignoring matters of state. They make derogatory comments that annoy Edward, and when Gaveston returns, the lords cannot contain their anger, and young Mortimer draws his sword and wounds Gaveston. The king threatens the lords, who in turn agree that they must eliminate Gaveston quickly. Mortimer Senior has been caught by the Scots, but Edward refuses to pay his ransom. Senior lords are enraged and list the many ills the king has caused the country, and then leave threatening open rebellion. Edward seeks solace with his brother Kent, who has supported him before, but finds he too has turned against Gaveston. He sends him away and swears revenge on all of those who oppose him. Kent joins the conspiracy against the king once he has had word from the lords that they do not intend to harm his brother. Believing it is the way to win Edward's love, Isabella tells him about the plot and he flees with Gaveston, but not before he insults the queen with accusations of multiple adulteries. The lords find Isabella alone cursing her foolishness and she reveals Edward's whereabouts to them. As they rush off in pursuit, she resolves to take her son to France so that they can be with her brother, the king. The lords have caught Gaveston and assure him that he will die for his crimes. Edward pleads to see him before the sentence is carried out. They are reluctant, but eventually agree and put their prisoner into the care of the Earl of Pembroke, who then passes him to his servant James. Warwick takes Gaveston from Pembroke's men, saying that a service to the good of his country is more important than a service to his king. Edward is lost and depressed without Gaveston, and the news only gets worse when he is told of the rebels' growing strength in the light of his own inabilities. Then Isabella and Prince Edward enter to report that the King of France has taken the Normandy possessions. Edward sends them back to France to try to mitigate the situation. Edward is told that Gaveston is dead. The king swears revenge and commands his men to ready themselves for war. The two sides meet at Boroughbridge and in a lull in the fighting, the king meets with his lords. They berate him for surrounding himself with sycophants and he affirms his intention to fight to the death. The king's men win the battle and the king hands out death sentences and long prison terms to those who opposed him. Edward's supporters hear that Isabella is making a deal with the King of France that would destabilise Edward. Kent goes to France to assist Isabella, but her planning has come to nothing. Sir John Hainault enters and brings the Queen to Kent and Mortimer, who intend to install her son as King. The Queen agrees despite Prince Edward's objections, and they leave to return to England. When Edward hears of their return, he is disappointed that his son is involved, but realises that he will have to fight this new rebellion. His forces are outnumbered by the rebel army and are forced to retreat. Prince Edward is appointed Lord Warden of the realm, and Kent is assured that Parliament will decide the fate of the king. Edward and a few companions have escaped to Ireland, and are hiding in an abbey disguised as monks. As they consider the attraction of this simple life, some English lords arrive. They arrest the king's companions, taking them off for execution as traitors, and prepare to take the king to England. Held captive, Edward is asked to abdicate in favour of his son. He refuses, pointing out that with his son on the throne, Mortimer would be the real power in the kingdom. Otherwise, his speech is full of self-pity and regrets. It is only when the lords threaten to have his son disinherited if Edward refuses to abdicate that he reluctantly agrees to do so. Mortimer informs Isabella of the death of the king's men and offers himself as regent. They hear that Kent attempted to rescue Edward from his prison and to preempt any further attempts Mortimer orders that the king be kept constantly on the move. Kent again tries to get to Edward but his jailers recognise him and take him prisoner. Meanwhile Mortimer realises that his position is not safe as long as the king lives. He hires an assassin, Lightborn, to kill the king and make it look like it was the work of his jailers. Isabella and the newly crowned Edward III are with Mortimer when Kent is brought to them, accused of aiding Edward. The young king protests that his uncle should be spared, but Mortimer overrules him and sends Kent to his death. Then comes the gruesome death of King Edward. Lightbourne prepares matters with the jailers, who then bring Edward to him. Realizing his fate, Edward describes all of his troubles, but the murder is inevitable. The implication is that the king is killed by having a red hot poker inserted into his rectum. One of the jailers acts quickly to kill Lightbourne, but it's too late to save Edward. Mortimer is informed that the King and Lightbourne have been killed and that the jailers have escaped. Isabella enters. She has been told about the murder of Edward and knows that they are responsible. King Edward III enters and accuses them directly of murdering her father. He shows them a letter that Mortimer wrote while arranging the assassination. Mortimer is taken away to be executed, although Isabella pleads for her son to spare him. Edward says that if he learns that she has been complicit in any way, she will be punished as well. A lord enters, bearing Mortimer's head. Edward III delivers a speech that commemorates and eulogises the successes and tragedies of his father. So, sorry about the long synopsis, but it's quite a complex plot with a large cast of characters that represents the true history of the events pretty well. Marlowe took his time with the first act, making sure that the main characters were well established. He trusted his audience would come with him. We quickly see that Edward is rash and foolish and that he will be undone by his romantic notions. The lords are untrustworthy and we also see a hint of Queen Isabella's own lack of faith in her husband. She, as a woman trying to be accepting of her situation, makes a strong contrast with Edward who, it seems, cannot see the dangers in the lack of restraint he shows when it comes to his feelings for Gaveston. Early on, Marlowe introduces the idea of the Wheel of Fortune, of the idea that characters believe that they can change fate, a view that most of them will be disabused of by the end of the play, although by then it's too late for them to realise it. In Act 2, the slow burn continues, with the character traits of the main protagonists being developed further, as Kent and Isabella prove to be more devious and the Lords more antagonistic than might have been thought but still Edward does not see the danger he is walking into. The whole court is shown as an unstable entity because preferment relies entirely on the king's whim, leading to politicking and treachery as individual lords seek a route to advancement. As the young Spencer says, you must be proud, bold, pleasant, resolute, and now and then stab as occasion serves. Act 3 sees the escalation of matters into civil war, but Marlowe also makes it clear that things did not have to go this far. Just a small step back from Edward to put the kingdom before the personal, or for the lords to act diplomatically rather than scoffing at their king, would have prevented the bloodshed. It is certainly not only the king who's being criticised here. The fourth act shifts in emphasis from the battle for the realm to the more personal view of Edward and his failings. There's a certain eloquence in his speeches but his self-pity and regrets inevitably come to the fore making him a difficult character to empathise with. There's an ironic tone to his lamentations when he blames his position for his behaviour where the viewer might think that it is his behaviour that brings him to his downfall despite his position. And at the end, the play is concerned with a transfer of power, which was always a time of instability, especially for those who had seen the recent history of the Tudor dynasty. Marlowe's attitude seems to be ambivalent. It's difficult to see if he is optimistic or pessimistic about the new king's chances. The young Edward acts firmly in dispatching Mortimer, but is he just repeating his father's mistakes? Is the kingdom heading for prosperity? or will the instability within the ruling family and the elite just lead to more dark times? All of which were very real and potent concerns for Elizabethans. Death, Marlowe seems to be saying, plagues England's rulers, and Edward III will have to be a very special sort of king to escape the same traps that his father fell into. As the main character, Edward has much to say in the play but there are only select passages where the poetry sparkles. Some say they can be counted on one hand. If Marlowe was trying to express Edward's character through the language, a not unreasonable ambition, then his inability to say inspiring and hopeful words is well demonstrated. But it leaves the play sounding a little dead, or at least lacking in the liveliness of Marlowe's best work. It's a good idiom for characters who bicker and argue with each other but fail to progress their situation. But in so doing, if that was his intention, Marlowe has boxed himself into a corner and by necessity of the characters he chose to portray cannot allow the poetry to soar in the way that he had already proved to be very capable of. But there are moments. There's a passionate strength in Edward's despair when he says, let Pluto's bells ring out my final knell and hags howl for my death at Chiron's shore. But then we look at the character of Gaveston and wonder how the king can be so blind to how unworthy Gaveston is of his affections. His defiance and belligerent attitude to the lords of the court is unfathomable. Typically he says, farewell base stooping to lowly peers, my knee shall bow to none but the king. Are we to believe that he has absolute faith in the king's power to protect him? Clearly he does and it is unfounded but having been exiled previously that really seems a stretch to believe. But of course Marlowe wasn't working in a theatre of realism or post-Freudian character development. If there is a valid truth in that sense then it is I suppose that love is blind and blinding and perhaps the lure and exercise of power is too. When it comes to Edward's death, the symbolism entailed there would not have been missed by Marlowe's audience. The name of his assassin, Lightborn, was an anglicisation of a name for Lucifer, and the use of the red-hot poker shows what is awaiting Edward in hell. A common belief went, the punishments of hell were supposed to be re-enactment of the crimes you had committed on earth, exaggerated and extended for eternity. Isabella is, for me, one of the most interesting characters in the play and an unusually complex female for Marlowe. She tries to break out of her traditional role of supporting the king, then decides that it is in fact better to support him than to go against him, but then fails to persuade her brother, the king of France, to become involved in English affairs and in the end is willing to participate in Mortimer's plans. For all of those changes of tack, her reasoning for her actions in the moment seems reasonable and soundly thought out. We can sympathise with her and the difficulties of her situation, even like her, and are then somewhat wrong-footed by her deceptions as her means of saving the realm. Is there a hint that she may think she can become the power behind the throne as her son's regent? Perhaps, but Mortimer dominates, and she soon gives in to his will and it is Mortimer who is intended to be the villain of the piece. The suggestion of his affair with the Queen and his gradually growing power make his treachery towards Edward and his son the greatest betrayal of the play. His lust for power is obvious, and no one is surprised when he is removed at the end of the play. But he does face the end with dignity, realising that man cannot control fate. Recalling earlier images of the Wheel of Fortune, he says, "Base fortune." Now I see that in thy wheel there is a point to which men aspire. They tumble headlong down. That point I touched, and seeing there is no place to mount up higher, why should I grieve my declining fall? Throughout the play, he has made Prince Edward look particularly vulnerable, and it is perhaps the biggest surprise of the play that as Edward III, he can act so decisively over Mortimer and order his speedy death. Ultimately, Edward II is a play about the drastic transitions that can occur in all human lives and the tenuous and treacherous nature of power. Characters swing from one extreme of fortune to another and then back again. Kings are brought down, queens betray their family, sons are left behind and find themselves rulers before their time and against their will. Birthright is not only a double-edged sword but a tightrope to be negotiated with great care, and not one character in this play is shown to be of the right calibre for that. Ambition and lust make liars and fools out of nearly every character. As with Faustus and Tamburlaine, it's possible to draw some useful comparisons between the Jew of Malta and Edward II. On the surface they are very different. The Jew of Malta is a lively entertainment with a resourceful and entertaining protagonist in Barabbas the Jew, whereas Edward II is a serious history with a passive central character. However, they share the narrow world vision and less striking poetry that I've already mentioned. Both are essentially secular in outlook and their world vision is populated by the same type of narrow-minded brutish characters who do little good in the world. Where Tamburlaine showed strength through the sword, Barabbas can only swing his money bags. Both are monsters, but Barabbas lacks the nobility that Tamburlaine can display even in his darkest moments. Edward is inward-looking and petulant, lacking the qualities expected of a king, whereas Faustus can always articulate his intentions. And you will probably have noticed that I haven't mentioned the massacre at Paris. This only exists in a very short version, about 1,250 lines, and is too short to be the complete play. There is speculation that this version might be a memorial reconstruction of the play by actors who had performed it. The references to it that exist in Henslow's diary are also a little unclear, but suggest that it was first performed in 1593, but then abandoned after 10 performances. There's also a suggestion of a revised version being planned in 1602 but there are no further details. There are parallels with Edward II and the Jew of Malta in the retelling of recent history and the way characters, in the case of the Duke of Guise, pursue power regardless of their social responsibility to their nation or the corrupting power of the very thing that they desire. But otherwise. It's an anti-Catholic polemic where the characters veer to the grotesque and the high body count becomes amusing rather than tragic. Given the uncertain nature of the text that has come to us and the fact that it broadly only replays themes discussed in Edward II, I won't trouble you with it further here. So as I close out my thoughts on Christopher Marlowe, I'm drawn to the feeling that although we have relatively little evidence of his work and even less understanding of his true character, nature and ambitions, we do, in these five plays, see a poet and a dramatist not just feeling his way, but boldly stepping out with the confidence of youth to shake the world of the theatre. He not only showed how blank verse could become the natural language of the theatre and be used to craft words to represent all men and women of his age, but started the development of the rhymed couplet that in the next few decades would become such a powerful tool in the dramatist's kit. I haven't mentioned this before because his best efforts at rhyming couplets are in his translations of Ovid rather than in his plays, but as an innovator it is not just his mighty line that he should be remembered for. Through that mighty line and his experiments with the couplet and his ability to create worlds on stage that excited his audience he was a trailblazer from which there is a direct line not only to Shakespeare and to Johnson but to the likes of Dryden and Pope. As such, Marlowe holds, I believe, an absolutely pivotal place in the development of English theatre. Next time we're going back to the practicalities of the Elizabethan theatre with a look at the playing troops. I've mentioned them several times in passing at various points but now it's time to consolidate their story into a single episode to understand how the actors themselves navigated the sometimes complex world of Elizabethan theatre. In the meantime please do think about leaving a review to help others find the podcast or just let me know your thoughts by email. You can join the Facebook page or group and find a podcast on Instagram or Twitter to keep up to date with new episodes and other theatre-related stuff. You can find details of ways to support the podcast at the website which is www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com. There's also additional content on Patreon that you can access for a small monthly fee, where lately I've added episodes with more extensive quotations from Tamburlaine and Dr Faustus. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at t-h-o-e-t-p at gmail.com or via Twitter at t-h-o-e-t-p.